Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of It Depends. This week, Nadia and I had the opportunity to chat with Fahad Diwan. Fahad is a lawyer specializing in all things data, including privacy, artificial intelligence, and cybersecurity. Alongside these interests, Fahad has co-founded a number of different organizations and startups, including the National Canadian Lawyers Initiative. Alongside several other Queen's students, I had the opportunity to volunteer for this pro bono organization this summer, and I cannot say enough good things about it. In this episode, we talked to Fahad about his experience in the corporate world on Bay Street, the challenges that legal professionals face when it comes to starting businesses, and some general and important advice for all students to keep in mind as we battle through this second wave of COVID-19. We hope you enjoy the episode. So yeah. first off, we just want to thank you for taking the time out of your day. Yeah, you're, you're uh, very welcome. It's always great I to know. chat to you. Although uh, we're in a pandemic, our time seems to waver a little quicker for some reason. <laughs> um, we're going to try and start you off with an easy question. Basically, our first question is why law? Why did you choose a, a career path in law? Just looking at your, your CV and your, your pages, you, you seem to have experience in a lot of areas and you've, you've done a lot. So what made you focus in on law? I'm very indecisive. You know, initially I was going to be a CPA and that didn't really float my boat. So then I decided to leave that and do a lot of self-exploration and I traveled quite a bit. And the true answer is that I just had the idea to apply to law school when I was backpacking in Nepal. But I did give it more thought than that. I, I thought that by going to law school I was, and becoming a lawyer, I would always be able to make a, uh, a meaningful impact on society in some way, shape, or form. And that really influenced my decision to go to law school and become a lawyer. And so you, you started pursuing the, early on in your career, you started pursuing business law and uh, you article that Norton Rose Fulbright. So how is that experience? How is the, uh, the big Bay Street firm life experience for you? How did you enjoy it? Yeah, I, I, uh, the, OCI, the OCI process is very attractive because it's very structured. And because of my background, I you know, you know, naturally gravitated to corporate law. But if I'm being honest with myself, I always had a strong interest and desire in criminal law. But for whatever reason, I was drawn to the OCI process and I went through uh, and had interviews with several Bay Street firms. And, I, and you know, thankfully, I got, an, I got a few offers and one from a great firm like Norton Rose. And my experience there was, was great. I mean, you're surrounded by exceptionally talented lawyers, many of whom are the best in their fields. And you get to work on challenging files that have a big impact in M&As or in, uh, you know, in IP litigation. So my experience was overall very good at Norton Rose. I only have good things to say about it. Uh, but I guess this will be a segue into the next question because I guess you, uh, I did for, I felt that I uh, wanted to focus on reforming the criminal justice system. And that 
influence my decision to leave Norton Rose? So I guess that also leads into the, the other question we had for you is, you, so you started off um, business related, you critical at a great firm, and then I think you kind of came into the realization of uh, access to justice or the thought of, of access to justice. And it's become quite important in your career and you've, you've pursued it in, a, in an extensive way. Can you talk about how that interest came about and why it's so important to you? Absolutely. I, so my interest in access to justice is fueled in part by my interest in technologies. As soon as I got into law school, I was really eager to use technological tools to improve the system. And in uh, my second year in GICP, which I'm not sure if it's called the same anymore at McGill or what it would be called at, at Queens, but it's the uh, course that talks about how, uh, you know, court procedure. And we discussed extensively the access to justice problem and many facets of it just struck, to me, struck out to me as being easily solvable through technology. So I, in law school, I, I interviewed people at courthouses and small business owners to see why they were struggling to access legal services. And I created a technological solution to bridge the gap uh, that exists when they, for them to access affordable legal services. And then after you know, leaving Northern Rose, I worked on SmartBail, which was, while it was a machine learning app, a big part of the mission was to uh, increase access to justice and the same thing with the National Canadian Lawyers Initiative. And so a big reason why I'm attracted to access to justice is that I see that many of its issues can be mitigated through technology. And the second reason why I'm interested or I'm attracted to access to justice is, and you know, uh, you, uh, Nadia and Chris will know this already, law and the ability to access justice is one of the fundamental institutions in our democracy. And it is something that is essential at keeping, at maintaining our social fabric. And if people cannot meaningfully access justice, then we risk eroding the social fabric. So those are the two reasons why I'm drawn to improving access to justice in Canada. That's a great answer. And you know, I'm curious about your, your interest in technology. Did that always was that always an interest of yours did it start at a young age you know did you ever consider pursuing a career in in the technological space yes and no i think a part of it was startup hype you know nowadays mm -hmm. and even when i was in at mcgill everybody and their and, and their uncle wanted to get into startups because of the possibility of making uh, big money and of uh creating something that would be used on a wide scale basis. And once again, to make a, an impact, but I did not have an interest in technology at a young age. I only really developed an interest in it as I was getting into law school. And as I was seeing how it could be a, it could be a tool that can improve our legal system. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, Speaking of startups, um, I mean, have you, you founded a, a, a couple of, of uh, organizations and helped co-found some others uh, and, you know, they're in the legal space. Um, tell us a little bit about, about those organizations that you're a part of and, you know, 
what tips would you give to, to people who want to start their own business in the legal field, specifically, you know, in relation to the technological space or I guess in that, you know, Silicon Valley type of type of manner? Sure, sure. So I, I've worked on a, and I've co-founded and founded a few different companies Two have been in the legal technology space and one has been outside of it. Uh, the first one was SmartBail. SmartBail was a machine learning software to help make decisions on who we should release uh, on bail. And the mission of it was to reduce unnecessary detention and any you know, racial bias that may exist throughout the process. So state-of-the-art machine learning research shows um, counterintuitively that machine learning applications can actually reduce bias during detention decisions and also reduce the likely, reduce unnecessary detention that that uh, often happens, not just in Canada, but in the United States. So we have research in New Jersey, where they're now using a weighted checklist, though it's not leveraging machine learning, but a weighted checklist to make these determinations. And they've been able to reduce their pretrial detention population by 20%, along with the, uh, the, the percentage of uh, black women and Hispanic men. So, Smart Bill was trying to bring this tool to Canada. And I spoke with various elected officials from across the country, uh, stakeholders in different uh, niche industries, civil society organizations. But there was, there was not, there are some barriers to implementing it in Canada. There are some barriers in the market uh, about how people have a reaction to this tool being used. You know, one criticism I would often get is, is this minority report? Are we now, you know, judging people based on uh, actions it did not do? And there's also some other issues surrounding the novelty of machine learning and the, the complexity it involves. So there were some barriers to implementation, which led me to uh, uh, put that project on the side and work on another startup, which was outside of the legal tech space called SnapRefer. And it was for that startup that I was flown down to Silicon Valley by Y Combinator, which is a prominent uh, investment firm. Uh, and you can immediately see, and this kind of uh, spills over to the second part of your question, which was, you know, what advice I would give to uh, people wanting to enter the legal technology space. You can immediately see the differences between working on a legal technology project and working on a, uh, a non-legal technology project. So there are some big challenges when developing a legal tech uh, platform. They're not insurmountable, but they are different from other industries. So the legal tech industry is highly regulated. So depending on which idea you pursue, you'll encounter issues with the law societies of various provinces. And in many cases, for good reasons, you know, for justifiable reasons. Um, also lawyers are generally risk averse, conservative people. So selling to them is very difficult. It can be, uh, it can result in long sales cycles. And so when you're a, an entrepreneur on the ground level, you have a certain amount of runway, which is the amount of time you have before the cash in the bank runs out. And you cannot always afford long sales cycles. So my advice would be to carefully define your business model before entering into the legal technology space and validate it. Don't come in with a lofty idea of how you're going to revolutionize how big law is done. 
Start mm-hmm. very small. Who are you selling to? Will they buy it? And then go out and speak to them. Hey, I have this. Uh, you don't even have to build the technology yet. Just say, look, I have this product ready to go. Can, will you buy it for 50 bucks today? See if they say yes. See if they say no. If they say no, ask them why. It's, it's this idea called the mom's test, which was, uh, I can't remember the author's name right now, but if you Google it, it's a great way of quickly validating ideas. And I think that would save a lot of legal tech entrepreneurs a lot of time and a lot of heartbreak from failures. And my second big piece of advice to legal tech entrepreneurs would be speak to other legal technology entrepreneurs because many of the issues that you're currently encountering, they've already faced and they'll be able to tell you which roadblocks you're likely to hit before, uh, even before you start working on the idea and that'll save you uh, a significant amount of time. So when I was working on SmartBail, I spoke with this um, uh, fantastic legal tech entrepreneur called uh, Nargis from Destin AI. And the first thing she told me when I was admitted into the legal innovation zone at Ryerson University was, oh, you're trying to sell this product to the government and your government is your only, is your only customer. I think you're in for a lot of difficulties because if you're mm-hmm. only planning on selling to the government, you'll probably run out of runway before you land even a, a small pilot project. And, and she was right, but I, uh, I didn't listen and I'm happy I didn't listen because it allowed me to get an idea that I still believe in out into the public and advocate for it. But it just goes to show that there's a lot of value in speaking to other legal tech entrepreneurs. So I guess the, the main customers for the legal tech field would be either sole practitioners or law firms. Are those like the big customers in this, in this group? By and large, yes. But there are some platforms uh, that I've uh, come across like uh, uh, immigration consulting platforms that do deal directly with the public that does get mm-hmm. tricky because they often encounter issues with uh, the law society. And then there are platforms that uh, where you can sell to the government and successfully sell to the government like uh, Blue Jay Legal has done. They, they have uh, their software being used by the government of Canada in Canada's revenue agency. And I believe also in uh, how Canada processes some immigration applications or the law surrounding immigration applications. I'm going to take a quick step back. And you were mentioning before the bail program and looking into race and diversity. And I think you'd you'd likely have some good insight on this, just given the experience you have with everything going on now and everything that's gone on in the past. Do you think that the legal field in Canada is on its way to becoming more diverse and inclusive? And if so, um, how, how do you think that's going to look and what else can legal professionals do to expedite this process? Cause it's, it's becoming a pretty prominent issue now. Yes, yes, it is. A, it is a very prominent issue. I think that the legal profession has done, has made progress so far and that is something we should absolutely recognize and appreciate the legal profession looks very different from how it did in uh, you know 1970s 1980s 1990s that being said we still have a lot more work to do 
And some of the challenges that I see is there's a lot of fluff in this area. A lot of firms uh, go out of their way to put diversity and inclusion statements on their policies. But then when it comes, to, comes down to interviews and hiring, they end up selecting many candidates from a specific um, that have you know, shared characteristics. So I think that there is a lot of fluff and firms really need to start putting money where their mouth is. And it's not just firms, it's also law schools as well, depending mm -hmm. on how they select who to admit into law schools. They could be inadvertently discriminating against a, a group of people. And I, I don't know if this is necessarily the case, but I have noticed that even when I walked into McGill, and I think McGill does a, a great job at trying to be more diverse, and they are getting better over time. But when I first walked into McGill, I was actually surprised at how um, homogenous it was, especially because I came from a, a university, uh, I came from Concordia University, which was very diverse. So the contrast was there. And I'm not placing blame on McGill. I think McGill is, is, is uh, taking this issue seriously, and they're, and they're, uh, taking concrete steps to make themselves more diverse as the years go on. But I think that there is still some work to be done. And I'm not entirely sure what the best way forward is. So I, I know that I'm, I'm saying that there isn't enough diversity. I know that I'm saying that there is a lot of fluff in this area. But when it comes down to concrete steps, it's, it's a bit challenging for me to say, hey, okay, this is how we should do it. I know that some firms have establish certain targets in certain categories that they have to reach by 2021 and 2025. And that might be one uh, good approach, but I'm not entirely sure what the best approach would be. That's interesting that you bring up the uh, idea of law schools and their approach to diversity. Um, I'm not sure if you heard some of the news to come out of uh, the Queen's Faculty of Law recently. Uh, no, I'm not that I'm aware of, no. So, yeah, it's, it's just very interesting that you, that you bring that up because um, speaking about the fluff and, and things like that, Queens took a very, uh, a very big step in, in recognizing diversity and also marketing Queens, you know, better as a more inclusive space and a space where um, particularly Indigenous students can feel more comfortable. Um, so Great. Queen's Law has, yeah, it's denamed its, its law school from Sir John A. Macdonald Hall. Um, it's currently denamed and there is no name for the law school right now. But um, after months and months of, uh, of work by some amazing individuals at our school, the name that's associated with Sir John A. and, you know, some of the darker parts of his history has been officially erased. Um, and I think that Queens has finally made its first step to become a more inclusive space for, for particularly for indigenous students. And, uh, it's, well, it's that's good. great to hear. That's great yeah. to hear. So, so I guess what, yeah, what we want to ask you next is, is, um, more so about the pandemic, what well, COVID-19 specifically. Um, so, you know, after several months with, with the uh, National Canadian Lawyers Initiative and, uh, you know, how, having lived through this pandemic, just like everyone else, um, how has the pandemic changed your outlook on the law and how the Canadian 
um, you know, the court systems, how access to justice has changed. How, how has the pandemic changed your outlook? Yeah, the pandemic reminded me the serious gap that exists for people when they try to access justice. So through the National Canadian Lawyers Initiative, for the, for the listeners who may not know what we do, we connect uh, individuals and businesses. Initially, it was individuals and businesses affected by COVID-19, but now our mission has gotten broader. We connect individuals and businesses to free legal advice and law students to mentorship opportunities. And I was surprised when I, at the type of people that reached out to us for help because they weren't always the type of people you'd expect. And this is something that I did realize in law school as well, but I was reminded about it once more through the National Canadian Lawyers Initiative. And that is simply that there are many people who are in the middle class that can't afford legal services, especially when something like the pandemic happens and they're concerned about what the future looks like and they're not in a position mentally to shell out big dollars for getting quality legal advice, but they have serious problems that need addressing, whether it could be a wedding contract that they need to get out of because the wedding venue can no longer deliver services in the manner that they had initially portrayed. Or if it's a a grandmother trying to get custody of her daughter and she's not entirely sure how to navigate the court system during the pandemic. So I think that that's one thing that the NCLI reminded me of, uh, that the access to justice problem is, is real. And when you know, big issues like the pandemic occur, it exacerbates the underlying issues and it amplifies them in, in many communities and not even just marginalized and disadvantaged communities. I, I also noticed that that there are going to be many big changes to the law coming up, both in terms of uh, which areas of law are going to be important and also how law is practiced. So when I was on Bay Street, um, while we were allowed to work from home, it wasn't really part of the culture. So now I'm predicting, and don't hold me to it, but because I may be wrong, Many lawyers will want to continue working from home a few days out of the week, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And so now that the cat is out of the bag and people are seeing some of the advantages of working from home, now if you live in Toronto, that could mean that you're you're commuting two hours less a day. This is going to be a reality. And there's a lot of opportunity here. For one, it can finally crack the problem of how uh, Bay Street lawyers, and not just Bay Street lawyers, every lawyer works exceptionally hard, how they have challenges at uh, work-life balance. But if you're, if you're working from home, in some instances, it can be easier for you to have some semblance of a balance. If you're not spending that time commute, that could mean an extra hour with your children that day. So, and also, if more and more people are working from home, Bay Street firms and other firms, I keep going back to Bay Street firm because that's where I, I article, but I don't mean to just limit the discussion to them. Firms can reduce office space, which can in turn reduce their rent, 
which can be significant. And that money can be used to, yes, pay associates and partners more or reduce the fees that they charge to their clients. So that could be one way that the pandemic actually helps access to justice because if more people are working from home and firms realize they don't need as much office space, they can afford to charge lower rates. I also see the, and I, and I have a conflict of interest here because this is the area of law that, that I focus on now, but I see privacy and cybersecurity becoming increasingly important. It was already important before the pandemic, but now with many people uh, like doctors and lawyers working from home, there's a lot of confidential information being relayed over uh, sometimes insecure networks. And many, many doctors and lawyers are using uh, tools that aren't uh, cyber secure and aren't completely private. So even if you dig into some popular video conferencing tools, and we saw this when the pandemic first started, that there were some vulnerabilities that allowed unauthorized parties to access the communications or the data was being transmitted uh, via servers located in foreign jurisdictions that have broad national security laws that could allow, that, allow the government from that jurisdiction to access that data, which could mean that a private communication between me and my doctor is now being uh, collected and viewed by a, a foreign country. So I think that privacy and cybersecurity, while it always was important, will become even more so uh, after, well, since this pandemic has begun and well after it's finished. You've mentioned a bunch of areas of law throughout our podcast. We've talked about corporate, we've talked about, you just talked about cybersecurity, we've talked about AI, we, you mentioned the uh, custom examples, so we talked about family contracts when you mentioned the wedding, the, the wedding scenario, for example. What area of law do you think needs special attention when it comes to access to justice? And now it, it is like a, a, a difficult question because you're narrowing it down and access to justice should be given in every area, but is there one area you, in particular you see suffering from this? Yes, so it was the most frequent category of issue we received at the National Canadian Lawyers Initiative, and it's family law. People have a lot of family law issues that they need resolved, and this category of issue affects people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, and many people can't afford quality family lawyers, and there's also sometimes an imbalance of powers here. If one party to the dispute has more money and they can afford good family counsel and the other party doesn't, then that party is, as you, as you can imagine, uh, pretty disadvantaged in that situation. So family law is extremely, extremely uh, susceptible to, uh, or is, is very affected by, is, in my experience, it's a category that was most affected but uh, that I, it was, I'm jumbling my words here, I apologize. It's uh, the most frequent category I encountered. And I think that some institutions are taking creative approaches to helping it. And they've recognized that this is a, a frequent uh, category. There's a family law portal that the Legal Innovation Zone has created and it's to help people navigate divorces and separations. And that's like one tool that you know, lawyers and legal professionals can, can think about when trying to increase access to justice in this area. Absolutely. 
I noticed. Uh, so just minding was, the time, we don't we don't want to take too much of your time up. So we're gonna wrap it up with our our final question, which we ask most guests, um, and everyone's advice is always amazing. So what advice would you give law students generally, um, just pursuing and going through law school? And we're gonna tack on what advice would you give law students now, given that the circumstances are changing? I think that law students will always serve themselves well if they work hard and they try to do everything, every project, every essay, every, every contract to the best of their abilities. And this is a high bar, but it is something that will serve uh, uh, law students well over and over again, because it's a reputation business and you always want to put your best foot forward. And yes, that, that can be stressful at times, but I'm of the opinion that you should do less and do it better rather than take on a lot and not be able to give it uh, your best because that will definitely come back to haunt you. And also I would advise law students to have faith Things will work out as long as you keep trying, keep getting up. You, know, you were admitted into law school for a reason. It means that you're smart. It means that you're hardworking. So have some confidence in your own abilities and have courage to follow a path that isn't traditional. The legal industry, though slow moving, is changing. And the people that follow non-traditional paths, I think, will be rewarded for it. So have faith and have courage. Things will work out in the end. And so far as what advice would I give specifically now that the pandemic, uh, in, in the context of the pandemic, I don't think that things will change that much or that quickly. I think that, uh, you know, remain optimistic while this is a, um, this can be a serious impediment to, you know, what, whatever goals you may have set before the pandemic, things will work out. The legal industry is bouncing back. If anything, the lawyers that I'm speaking to in big law, they're saying that their bottom lines have been performing, have been uh, doing exceptionally well uh, because of uh, a boom in bankruptcy and insolvency and privacy and cybersecurity, and even in mergers and acquisitions. So be optimistic, things may seem gloom at times but the legal industry is resilient there will continue to be very many jobs and things will work out yeah those are great sentiments i can see myself replaying that portion of this podcast later. <laughs> maybe when you know cases start to spike even more so than they are now and uh i mean we're on the verge of a very important election um you know i assume all three of us will probably tune into that later tonight um but yeah <laughs> Thanks for your words of encouragement and, you know, the stuff that you've talked about with us today is, is extremely important. Um, you know, things about diversity and making the legal field more inclusive and also, um, you know, how important technology is to the law and you've really, you know, given us a chance to think about that. Um, so we really appreciate it. Um, thanks so much once again, uh, you know, hopefully we'll hear from you soon and, uh, Take care. Thank you. 
Yeah, Chris and Nadia, thank you both for your time. It's always a pleasure to speak to uh, you know, talented and smart law students trying to make a difference. So I got as much out of this, uh, I got a lot out of this podcast and I appreciate both of your time as well. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. Awesome. Take care. Bye. Bye. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. Thank you to those who have supported us for more than a year now. It is really hard to believe that our first episode was released on October 19th of last year. And what a different place this world was. Nadia and I are so grateful for our guest's time and advice, and also for those who have supported us along the way. As COVID-19 continues to worsen around our country and around the globe, we wish everyone the best, especially as the holiday season approaches. In the near future, we're hoping to get in an episode that showcases the experiences of law students during the pandemic. And fortunately, things like Zoom and Microsoft Teams will allow us to do something like this. So stay tuned. Remember, we are all paving the way to a new legal field during these times, and our continued resilience will guide us through. Until next time, all the best and take care.